Welcome to episode three of Help, Hospitalists Evaluate Literature and Practice. My name is Beth Liston. I am the Director of Research and Scholarship here at The Ohio State University, and I'm a practicing internal medicine and pediatrics hospitalist. I'm here with... My name is Vijay Dugarala. I'm one of the hospital medicine doctors over at uh, Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. And I'm Dr. James Knight. I'm our Division Director of Medical Informatics and uh, a hospitalist here at Ohio State University as well. As a quick reminder, we do not represent the views of our institution. We are, our views are our own, as is this discussion. So I think it's Dr. Liston's turn for a fun fact. Um, I have a couple, but right now, you know, because I'm really fun, but wearing my Hogwarts t-shirt. <laughs> just, we just went to Harry Potter World because I awesome. presented at a conference on Monday, and so the kids came, and this weekend went to Harry Potter World. That's awesome. Fun. My wife and my mother-in-law were in Harry Potter World just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Is Harry Potter World the one in Orlando, or is it the one in Los Angeles? It's in Universal Studios in Orlando. Okay. They have two, actually, now. Okay. You can take the the Hogwarts Express between them. Awesome. It was really fun. What's the name of the Harry Potter bank? Gringotts. Gringotts. (laughs) Yeah. I was joking with my wife that they probably took muggle money at Gringotts. They will I bet allow they were happy to take muggle money Well, everywhere. there's an absolute exchange in Gringotts. You can you can <laughs> spend $10 to get a $10 galleon bill, which I did not choose to do. Okay. However, <laughs> if it had been a $1 exchange, I would have, because it would have been cool for a dollar, but for yeah. $10 it seemed crazy to exchange money. But so you kept your muggle money? I kept my muggle money. It was good throughout... Throughout Harry Potter world, they, they took plenty of it. <laughs> I had a feeling. <laughs> so. yeah. Today we're going to be uh, talking about uh, an article titled, Pilot Study Aiming to Support Sleep Quality and Duration During Hospitalizations. Uh, lead author Evelyn Gathecha, G-A-T-H-E-C-H-A, and I apologize to Dr. Gathica if, if I overly botched that. Um, she's at Hopkins, and uh, this is a paper that was published in the Journal of Hospital Medicine uh, last July, July of 2016. Um, before we start, uh, does anybody have anything they want to say about the uh, topic of the article before we get into it? I like the topic. I think that we all sort of, there's a lot of face validity. We intuitively feel that patients are woken up all of the time, um, and it seems like it would be bad for them. So I like the concept, and um, yeah, I think it's important to, to look at I think the title itself is somewhat catchy. Right? <laughs> Study to support sleep quality. Who doesn't need that? Not even just in the hospital, but at home, too. Uh, <laughs> I need sleep this quality. This is true. <laughs> um, and uh, I know, Vijay, you've done some work on similar related issues from a quality standpoint in our institution, so hopefully we'll get your input on that later. Sure. <laughs> um, so... Uh, so to summarize, uh, basically, the, the authors are calling this a quasi-experimental prospective study. Um, I'm throwing my hands up in the air. At what? The word quasi? Yeah. Because it seemed like a real experiment? Yeah. Yeah, it, it did to me as well. Um, I think that might reference the modeling. They did a lot of modeling, which we'll get to, which made it feel complicated. And maybe the fact that they used modeling... Where they didn't have data is where the the quasi-experimental component comes in. 
So, uh, uh, a little bit of uh, their background on sleep, uh, they basically pointed out that poor sleep uh, may be associated with poor healing, uh, that there's a lot of insomnia amongst elderly patients in the hospital and uh, in younger patients in the hospital, uh, maybe even more common, um, and that uh, hospitalized patients often cite, uh, as well as their illness, uh, as a reason they can't sleep. They also cite uh, hospital-related environmental factors and disruptions uh, as, as interfering with their sleep. Uh, and basically they, they took, but before we get to that, I'm just going to say, I really reading this introduction, I wanted to know what the definition of poor sleep was, mm. you know, what are they defining? Cause then they start measuring it and saying, well, I don't know if that's, I, I don't know how, what yardstick to use. And maybe I would, if I knew this literature better, but just looking at it as a sort of practical perspective, it makes it hard for me to assess. I don't know what that is. And they give impressive numbers about in, insomnia, but I don't know how that compares to the population outside of the hospital. And I would have liked that. Um, I don't know if you guys have any background on that beyond what I know. Well, I mean, I'm not a sleep expert. I know the gold standard is polysomnography and, and you know, but we're, we're not going to hook everybody up to a brainwave monitor and, and see how much REM they're spending uh, uh no, but this is, they use self-reports to determine sleep quality, right? And so I, I would like to know whether four out of five, which we'll get to. You know, I just wanted to know if there was a definition or some sort of accepted standard in this setting. But you know it when you've had it. <laughs> that may be true. Maybe, you know, it's we all kind of do. So maybe that's all you need. So their, their other measure, as well as the sleep diary, was um, something called actigraphy. Uh, which which Wikipedia tells me is essentially basically a kinetic. Beth is wiggling her smartwatch uh, to demonstrate. <laughs> I think that's such a device. It tells me how uh, often I sleep, how long I sleep. Right? I don't it's know basically a kinetic monitor uh, that that ends up being a proxy for for measuring your activity and knowing when you're sleeping and not. And and it's been fairly well validated uh, from what I could find online. So I thought that was sort of interesting. You know, it's essentially a Fitbit. Um, but I don't know exactly what device they use. Um, so uh, I'll talk briefly about the methods, uh, and I'll just kind of summarize, and I'll let VJ comment because I know he will have comments. Um, so, um, so the study was done at uh, at Hopkins uh, Bayview uh, Medical Center, which I don't know if that's their main hospital or not. Um, they uh, excluded patients with dementia. Um, uh, or inability to complete a survey due to delirium, disability, or language barrier. Uh, and then, uh, basically, they, they took two of the units that they admit patients to, and they said one of these is going to be a control unit, and one of them is going to be the sleep-promoting uh, intervention unit. Uh, and then um, when patients uh, arrived, they ended up being assigned to either the control or the intervention group, uh, basically by wherever beds happened to be available, um, which they're calling a haphazard assignment. Um, uh, and uh, I don't disagree with that, knowing what I know about um, bed placement and assignment. Um, uh, so uh, do you have any thoughts about uh, how patients were assigned, VJ? Yeah, so um, I think that the exclusion criteria makes sense, right? So people who are going through withdrawal of a controlled substance, alcohol, probably won't have good sleep. Um, if you're demented or if you're sundowning, probably don't have the ability to fill out a survey appropriately um, as well. Language barrier may make it a little bit difficult, so they were just trying to exclude that. The, the part that I wish I wish 
we would have known more about is some of these rooms, they also commented very quickly, are semi-private and some are private. So we don't know how many were on each, the controlled versus the experimental. Oh, interesting. I overlooked that uh, little moment. You know, these days it it feels like most places are private, but obviously that isn't always the case from a practical perspective. So, you know, some of this data doesn't go into further about how many of these patients were broken down into semi-private rooms. Because there's more recent data out there that says that if you're, if someone on the ward decompensates, you are more likely to have less sleep. You are more likely to actually have um, a longer length of stay just because somebody else decompensated on the ward that you were on as well. So I think that if I extrapolate just a little bit, if my partner in the room was to have a bad event or not sleep or become delirious through this process, that would affect my sleep mm-hmm. if they were up watching TV or communicating throughout the whole night. Sure. Um, I, you know, I don't love the number of exclusions, but, it, you know, it, it sets up front. It's a pilot. It's really just saying, all right, on the ideal patients, can we do this? Does it do anything? And so, you know, the application might be smaller, but I get that. I would point out that one of the excluded groups, the delirious patients, are patients that would benefit the most from having a good sleep cycle. But yeah, there's no way they're going to fill out an instrument uh, about their sleep. Yeah. Next steps, right? Next yeah. steps. Right. <laughs> the actigraphy, right. anyway. Give them all smartwatches. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just <laughs> laughing about giving delirious people smartwatches. <laughs> that might not be reliable either. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Um. I'm not sure uh, where to take that exactly. <laughs> um, they, uh, one of the other things that was sort of interesting is what they did with patients who used sleep medication at home. So if, if you used sleep medication at home, you, they continued them only if the patient requested them and they were not, obviously, and they were not contraindicated given their acute illness. So I think that's sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, it's going to color the results, but I'm, I'm not sure exactly in what way. Um, when they were um, uh, making their intervention in the in the intervention group that they wanted people to get better sleep in, they made some environmental changes, you know, unit-wide efforts to minimize light and noise disturbances, uh, dimmed hallway lights, um, tried to minimize care disruptions, uh, give overnight medications earlier in the evening if they could, minimize fluids overnight, um, and uh, keeping doors closed. Uh, and then they also gave everybody eye masks, uh, earplugs, blankets, and relaxation music if they wanted them. And yeah, they were offered, right? Not everyone got them. They were mm-hmm. offered, yeah. And, and they comment later in the article about who chose to use what, which I thought was sort of interesting. But I know uh, they, they cite some other articles indicating that those interventions are, are helpful. Uh, and I know, at our, I know we give out... Um, Sleeping masks for sure, and I don't know if we give out earplugs. We do. But they're in the packet yeah. as well. So um, you know, some some somewhere, um, uh, you know, our administrators and, and patient care teams were were paying attention to this type of thing. Um, and then the final component: a thirty-minute sleep hygiene education intervention taught by a physician. I'll pass on being the one delivering that. That you know, it highlighted basic sleep physiology, healthy sleep behavior, adapted from. Use, um, which that one's been like, wow, that's, yeah. uh, I don't know. I, it's more than I would have expected from this type of intervention. Um, it's maybe more than I would have expected to be easily applicable, right? They talked about things that are feasible for places to do. 
I'm not sure how they did it. I didn't see a lot on like, did they all go to a group? Did the the physician have a video? And was it just a video? That might be doable. Or I'm picturing our lead author showing up on the spot every time a patient got randomized to uh, the intervention group and uh, giving her spiel. Um, that sounds very um, user intense. Yeah. yeah. But you know that could you know if that was actually helpful. Uh, that can be given in a different way, either by uh, a person who um, uh, uh, you know has some some background in, or training in that, or just the uh, you know you could show the patient an educational video or have the have the video available on their um, on their hospital tablet. Yeah, I, I don't know that it would have to be in person. It doesn't even specify that it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, that would, that gave me pause. <laughs> Just saying, wow, I don't know. That would be a little more um, intensive. So. so one of the things that they also um, talked about real quickly was they tried to encourage visitors to leave by 10 o'clock. But they did this for both the, the experimental and the control group, just trying to limit how many people there were. And then the biggest portion of who's actually going to go disturb the patients in the middle of the night, the nurses and the actual care teams. So one of the um, one of the lead authors actually went and educated each of the nursing care teams on the experimental group to make sure that they knew why they were undergoing this process and what they wanted them to do. And then this, it was up to the supervising nurse to kind of follow up with the nurses at nighttime to say, hey, this is a patient on this floor that we are not going to wake up in the middle of the night. Well, and... I'm going to say they don't actually say don't wake them up, right? Deep. We didn't we didn't talk about vitals um, or other checks, right? They talked about things that are maybe... Care-related disruptions. But, right, but, but not But they vitals. didn't specifically talk about vitals. Yes. They didn't specifically talk about labs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, so. They did talk about fluids, which, mm-hmm. you know, fluids fluids lead to beeping IVs. So, you know, I think, yeah. I think there was probably some impact there. And the need to get up and use the restroom. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. so I like the way that they actually got the buy-in from the nursing standpoint to make sure that they could try to get the best data um, possible. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of collecting their data, they basically assessed uh, all the patients for their baseline level of sleep disturbance using several instruments, including the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, um, which we all know is better than the Cleveland Sleep Quality Index. I kid. I don't know if there's actually Cleveland. <laughs> Sorry, Cleveland. We don't know. We don't know. Um, and then, um, and then, while the patients were in the hospital, they actually completed a sleep diary every morning, uh, including things like perceived sleep quality, how refreshing the sleep was, how long they think they slept, um, and um, uh, and then um, uh, they also had the uh, actigraphy data for some of the patients. But not all of them, it sounds like, uh, or for not for the entire period that they were there. Um, and then, without without getting overly technical, uh, for the people listening on the podcast that aren't able to uh, follow along directly in the article or, or look at the uh, the notes, I mean, they were they basically uh, calculated a perceived sleep duration from the patient's reported time in bed, time to fall asleep, wake time, and number and duration of awakenings. Uh, and then they calculated a slope total sleep time and what they're calling a sleep efficiency. Um, and then uh, they also uh, measured impact of disruptions due to disturbances with a sort of with a sum scale of four items that they saw as negatively interfering with uh, sleep, like temperature, noise, and interruptions. 
uh, on a five-point scale. So. Yeah, I'd just like to point out that the numbers are pretty small, right? Our intervention's only 48, our control's only 64, and I'm kind of trying to think of, that's only 120 patients on two units in six months, so I have to wonder how many were excluded. I don't, it seems small, right? Mm-hmm. 60 patients, six months, 10 patients a month. Um and they weren't 100% matched, right, in intervention and control. There was a statistic. The, the yes, patient populations yes. were different. Do we want to talk about that? Or, Let's talk know. about that. I mean, we're talking about methods, right? And so right. I, I think the part of the methods is, I don't know, maybe that's... Maybe yeah, that's let's talk about it. So. So, so one of the other, before we jump to that real quickly and talk about the differences, they also made sure that these patients were evaluated for sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, and also depression because both of those could affect their sleep as well. So they made um, a, a, just a point to make sure that we knew that they also evaluated for those as well. In regards to the actual characteristics or the study part uh, participants, so how they're not matched correctly, Beth, would you want to? Yeah, the number of patients that re- use sleep medication prior to admission was unmatched, right? So there's a statistically significant difference between the two groups. The inter- intervention group had a lower percentage of people that used sleep medication prior to their admission, and the control group had a higher percentage. So it was um, 14 versus 32 percent, 14.9 versus 32.8 percent, right, with a p-value of 0.03. So my assumption would be that that patients requiring sleep medication at home have more disordered sleep. That's why they need a sleep medication. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you look at the baseline sleep measures between the two groups, those were actually all similar. So I I had trouble reconciling those those two facts. Well, one is treated, right? So one could infer, although I I think it is a stretch to do that, but um, that they had less disordered sleep at baseline because they were appropriately using a medication to treat their poor sleep, right? Is a medication, a medication is not often the appropriate way to treat poor sleep, right? <laughs> no, not necessarily. <laughs> I, I would have to think way back to my primary Right, that's what I'm saying. It's a, <laughs> it's a stretch to necessarily conclude that, but one could rationalize that, that, uh, or I don't know, one could think about it that way. Um, and or then, not, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. other ways. So, so it, you know, I, I guess I'm just not sure what to make of that, but it's sort of an interesting observation. And then the other thing that was different is the number of sleep diaries per patient uh, was higher in the uh, control group. Um, so they got more data out of their control group, um, which is sort of interesting, too. Okay. And some of these patients also had more than four sleep diaries, which will... Talk about they excluded. Well, them. yeah, and then they they kind of looked at their looked at their data, realized it was skewing their data, and Correct. then decided they just tossed those numbers out. Yeah, we'll get to that later. <laughs> I thought that was funny. So they did. They they measured a lot of different things, right? They measured the self perception of both quality and quantity, and then they measured the they used activity actigraphy to measure quantity, and that's kind of how I looked at those the three things, right? Self reported quality and then self-reported quantity and measured quantity, right? Yep. And then they did a lot of complicated statistical analysis to be able to model data that I think they didn't have and control for baseline (laughs) characteristics, right? Because they tried to control for the information on where the patients started in terms of their their quality, right? Right. And and that's kind of what I took away from that. I, I feel like I'm not a statistician. I don't know that I can analyze all the modeling they did, um, you know. 
but I, I take it as modeling is a little bit different than actually having the information. And for me, it feels a little more removed. Um, and that's harder to hang our hat on. But I will say that the model did control for um, whether they had taken sleep medication before or not. So they attempt to, to take the difference in the, the study populations into account right. as they looked forward. Do we want to talk? I don't necessarily want to talk about the statistics. The statistics in no. Honestly, I, I don't can't either. Think of and I don't know. Like... Boring for our persons <laughs> listening. Over here. How about it? It was complicated and tough to read, and it seems like maybe it was well considered, but again, is trying to make stretch data that. Um, otherwise it doesn't necessarily show a difference trying to look if there is a difference that could be determined had the patients been there longer or looked at over time right so it wasn't just a static comparison of this group to that group but what rather you know by number of days in the hospital to see whether over time the event intervention could um, help right because right away it may not but after a couple of days of improved hygiene they might have better sleep so, so, you know, I think the, the, one of the more, more useful um, uh, results that they found is, you know, not, have, not, looking at their, um, uh, not looking at their fancy slope analysis and stuff, but, but if you look at what they calculated as total sleep time for the two groups, mm-hmm. um, they had, what is that? It's about 50 minutes more in the intervention group than the control group overall. So 422 minutes of sleep. So what is that? Seven hours in the uh, intervention group and then 373 minutes of sleep in the control group, which is what? A little over six. So, so that's that's a big difference. And that p-value was, was 0.02. So overall, right, they had that 48 versus 64 and... Um, and then they looked at, you know, they, of those, not everyone did every part of it, right? Um, so each of them completed diaries, but w- there weren't very many that had more than four diaries. Um, only 50% of, sorry, 57% of the participants only had one night of valid activity data. 8% had three to four nights, and nine participants didn't have any usable activity data. And then adherence was not horrible, but it was only like 87% um, to, down to 64% on the different interventions on the nursing units, right? Right. So I thought it was interesting that the sleep diary outcomes show that there is about that additional 50 minutes of undisturbed sleep duration, improved quality there, or excuse me, let me just say increased sleep duration. But when they use their activity you know, just the Fitbit or whatever they're using, it didn't show much of a difference there. Mm-hmm. So that to me, there was a little discordance between what the patient is thinking mm-hmm. and what the data is actually picking up. So the perception is quite interesting there. The patient perception is I slept longer. I had a longer, more quiet, I had a longer duration of sleep. Doesn't We don't actually know about the, you know, the sleep quality was the same. It wasn't statistically different. The only thing that out of this table number two that pops out to me was they slept longer, but the actigraphy data did not show that. So therefore, they thought they slept longer, but they really didn't sleep that much longer. Yeah. So table two has it all, right? There's no difference in perception of quality. There's no difference in measured quantity. There's a difference in perception of quantity. And I, I feel like I take this as you do something, people think it helps. 
right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they all got a 30-minute video on sleep hygiene. Uh, I feel like there, it's not a – it wasn't a subtle thing. They didn't dim the lights and then see if that helped. They There's a business people. world for that effect. When you, when you attempt to change something and people perceive that things are better just because you've attempted to do something. I, <laughs> I would just go with placebo, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thinking, thinking way back. There's a Hawthorne effect. If you're studying people, then they um, they do better because Maybe they're being studied. But I, I don't know. I don't know if that would be accurate here. But certainly, you know, we taught them about it. They thought it helped. I don't. I don't know that I'm going to take a lot of meaningful, impactful data from that. So, do we want to talk about the slope of the uh, refreshed sleep rating? Uh, uh, over hospital day? Uh. Well, you know, it's interesting. So their main data, which is just what we talked about in table two, kind of talked about those three measures. But then table three is where they use modeling to see, okay, per day, did the perceived sleep, did the sleep quality, quantity, um, measured and perceived change per day so that each intervention day was helpful. Uh, and they they say that it does, that there's a change in the slope in terms of um, improving over hospital days, each of those measures. So why would that be? If the intervention is the same every day, why does it get better? People are better at implementing it. I know what I think. Well, I don't know that I buy that it's real, given that the average length of stay was only two days, right? Noted. Um, but, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, part of this is, so even in my own studies where I tried to affect sleep, and the, the question was, how do you get the nursing also to remember to implement these procedures or plan experiment with the patients. The main goal was the first day they may forget and they may cause an interruption. The second day they look at that and they go, oh yeah, I remember that patient. We're not supposed to bother them. So that may help. The other part is if I go to a hotel room, um, a foreign environment for me and go to bed, it's hard the first day. Yeah. The second, third day, by the third day, I think I get acclimated to where things are. Maybe it's just that. But this is unit-based, right? So the nursing units, they all know, right? So it's not like the nurse from one day to the next day is reminding themselves for that patient. The unit is all supposed to be doing that for all patients, except for the excluded ones, and actually maybe the, mo the excluded ones were more. And then the there sh you should see that same effect between control and intervention if they're just more comfortable, mm -hmm. right? That, so that wouldn't explain the slope change. So I think you're also forgetting the natural course of a hospitalization, which is that the patient comes in and they're sick and there's lots of interventions and people are in and out of the mm -hmm. room and they're hanging antibiotics and giving medication and checking on people. And then by hospital day two or three, they're starting to feel better and they're headed towards home and they're not getting labs as often. They're not getting as many interruptions. Now, that would be the same in both groups. Right. But in one of those groups, you've had an intervention. That education on sleep, and you're handing out uh, masks and plugs and, and all that stuff. So, by at that point, as the patient starts to feel better, they're able to take advantage of that education and the intervention, and that's when you see the benefit. That's the way I saw it. Okay, I'll buy it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I still kind of think you we did something. Patients perceived it to be helpful. Maybe the, the modeling says that over time it would be really helpful. Um, that's you know, I, I do think that they conclude pretty strong things from this data, right? They really state, although participants in the intervention unit reported improved sleep quality and feeling more refreshed, right? And I said it wasn't supported by actigraphy, um, but they really then conclude this led to sleep improvement quality, more restorative sleep, decreased report of sleep in interventions, especially among patients who had longer length of stay. So they, their data says maybe there's an effect 
Um, but their discussion, I think, really says there's definitely an effect. And um, I think that it's a little stronger than the data supports in terms of their discussion and conclusions. Um, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think I agree with that. I think, uh, I guess the real question is, um, what do you do with this? Um, well, I don't know that it changes my face validity. Okay, I buy it on concept that right. probably waking patients up in the middle of the night is bad. Right. I You got some ideas on things we can do, right, because they piloted a couple of different things. And I, it didn't help me decide which ones worked. It didn't help me decide how strong of an effect it was. And there weren't outcomes associated with it that I can say really did improve my patient's outcomes. Maybe the perceived sweep quality is an important outcome. Maybe that's actually going to improve their patient satisfaction. And they'll feel happier about the stay. And, you know, that has an impact. But, yeah. I started off agreeing with the idea. I finished up. Kind of agreeing with the idea. I don't know. That's where I take this article. I like the idea. I agree with the idea. I think that, you know, minimizing interruptions overnight, um, trying to decrease the amount of fluid so people don't have to get up in the bath, trying to go to the bathroom. But then we always think about things such as falls. There was never a patient safety outcome mm-hmm. um, to look at kind of how how to pick the right patient. Mm-hmm. And I think we still lack some of that data as to this isn't something I can generalize across our medical wards. We are going to say no demented patients, dementia patients, they exclude quite a bit. But even of those that are healthy, I still don't know how to really pick those specific patients mm-hmm. that would be good for this intervention. Um, what do you, what was, what was your experience reading this article, having done what you've tried to do with, with our group and maybe talk a little bit about that? So what I tried to Not do. Not to put you on the spot, but to put you on the spot. Yeah. So what to do with our group is I took every medical patient that came through um, and tried to figure out how do we pick the specific patient with no change in their adverse outcomes, making sure that they wouldn't have to go up a higher level of care, um, et cetera, if we were to space out their vital signs so that they could sleep starting at 10 p.m. all the way through 6 a.m. with no interruptions, doors closed, no beeping from IV fluids, no labs till 6 a.m., um, and no interruptions um, at all from that standpoint. The outcome I looked for, though, were adverse outcomes, patient deteriorated, uh, an emergency response team was required, or there was transfer to a different floor for any other reason. And what I looked as my primary outcome was what was the patient's perception of quiet at night and how did they do with their sleep? Um, I, I think, um, and, and so... Uh, when you're looking at the limitations of, of trying to affect these things, I think one of the other things that happens is the, the institution itself is also trying to intervene on, on anytime you've got a quality project, right? A lot of times you're trying to address a specific area of need. Well, the hospital's probably also trying to address that area of need. You know, um, one of the things on the HCAP survey is related to, uh, you know, how quiet is the hospital? And so, you know, these are end up sort of being a moving target that there can be mm. multiple variables uh, in play at the time as you're trying to, to target these things. And I think um, I, I found a, uh, a letter to the editor on this article from um, Dr. Aurora and uh, uh, a few others yeah. from the University of Chicago. And, and um, uh, her point was, I'm assuming it's a her, was yeah. that... Uh, uh, 
um, one of the things we need to do, and I love this being the healthcare IT guy, is you need to design your systems so that the easiest thing for clinicians to do is to deliver the care that provides the least disruption. So the default options in the computer <laughs> need to provide for decreased disruption to the patient. Um, and that leads to one of my other favorite soapbox topics, which is how useless it is that we draw everybody's labs at four in the morning. Well, so, and that varies, and I'm not going to say that's necessarily all across our health system or others, but just conceptually, a lot of places do it early, right? Yes. And that's And that's somewhat, I think, related to the teaching services wanting to have it when they rounded, or, you know, the teaching services when it, all of this was pre-hospitalist and residents had to have it. For those of you at home, I'm playing the world's <laughs> smallest no, violin. No, just explaining where it comes from. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I don't un- in any way understand why they need to be that early in um, the majority of places. It's, it's historical, right? Yeah. This, yeah. It comes from a time when you had to round at the hospital and then go to clinic and see patients and maybe come back and round again at the hospital. But you needed that data when you were seeing patients sure. uh, at the crack of dawn before you went back to clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've moved to a, you know, a, a cl- what's closer to a 24-7 care model. And my need for that data at 7 in the morning is zero. Uh, I can act on that data perfectly reasonably at 10 or noon. Mm-hmm. Um you know, outside of something that I that I would actually need in the morning for planning for procedures or discharge or other stuff, but those are those are that's a specific test that I have a specific need for at a specific time. Most of um, most of what I'm checking on people, I feel like I could get later in the day, and and we'd be just fine. So that's just some of the information and some of the disruptions, but the patient themselves, when they come into the hospital, they're given a telebox, a telemetry box. They're given a pulse oximeter on their finger at times. Um, you know, there's a lot of other... Yeah, yeah they're given, that beeps. They're given, they always beep. <laughs> yeah, they're given an IV. So they're given the poke, they're prodded, they're given all this other stuff and said, this is your room, this is where you're going to go to sleep, etc. Um, it would be nice if we could, over a period of time, merge with IT, use something like a... a I, a Fitbit. I cannot say Actigraph. But we are not in any way endorsing the model or yes, brand. Or a Garmin or whatever <laughs> you have on your wrist. But an instrument on your wrist that would be able to give us at least a, a close enough threshold to what your pulse oximetry is, what your heart rate is. And that can be monitored off-site. So I think we all agree that this is an important topic that we feel has face validity. Yes. I'm not going to pull this article out to teach from. I'm no. probably not going to bring it back. I think it highlighted the mm-hmm. the the problem. It gave me some background that I, you know I had some data on. It showed a little bit of how one might approach it. Yeah. Um, and you know maybe it was helpful. But it, it says it's a pilot. It seems like a pilot. It sounds like there's a lot more to do. Provides us something to build on as a pilot. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I do something specific from here. But it does. It does generate ideas, right? I don't, yeah. That is certainly that thirty-minute physician intervention is something probably I don't know that I would have thought of. So, thing. right, and I think the root of that, the root of that inter- intervention, I guess, is one of the important <laughs> questions yeah. if you were ever going to try and implement something like that. But you know, I, I just think it's it's uh, again, you know, the 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 more I do this, uh, and I've been in practice now since '09, and Beth, you've been in practice longer than that, and, and BJ's been with us for a while now. And the longer the longer I do this, you know, the less it's the less it's the nuts and bolts of of creatinines and white blood cell counts, and the more it's it's harder to lasso topics like sleep that have huge impact for our patients that we need to be cognizant of on a day to day basis. So I think that's. 
um, that's something I'll, I'll keep in mind going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. If there's no other thoughts, thanks everybody for listening. And um, uh, if, if you are an author on this paper, we'd love to hear from you. Um, if you, you know, want to come to us and you know, give more background on the modeling and maybe explain why that outcome might be stronger than we can interpret at first, that would be great. Um, so we appreciate it. Or if you're just a uh, sleep aficionado and you want to uh, tweet at us and have some dialogue about it, we'd be happy to hear from you as well. Um.